it's we're going through that door or we're sliding down that rope or we're blowing this or we're diving in here or flying in there or whatever and this is it it doesn't matter how many of us come out Welcome to the podcast where we track down Australian war veterans, have a chat with them and hear their stories. I'm Alex Lloyd and this is Life on the Line. The single greatest sacrifice I've made is my family. There were a couple of public beheadings. In order to kill them, you've got to be a little bit angry. Not psychotic, but just angry. We could look down Frankfurt and see it on fire. Stuff blowing up everywhere. There will be no surrender. And then they had to fight an enemy in amongst we got children. Right? Yeah. Yeah. I could never not go back. They were my friends and they felt the top of our She did say, you've changed. Soldier put everything on the line to help one of our boys. This conversation is with a 24-year Army veteran, a Warrant Officer Class 1, formerly of the 2nd Commando Regiment. This Special Forces operative is known as H. The senior Special Forces soldier has been thrice decorated for conspicuous service and valour. I spoke with H over Skype in a first for Life on the Line, a three-part conversation. This episode, Volume 1, covers H joining the military, Somalia, becoming a commando, Timor, and Tactical Assault Group, East. Volume 2 details some of H's significant combat experiences in Afghanistan. And in Volume 3, we reflect and look at the toll years of service at the tip of the spear can have. Subscribe in your podcast app to get every instalment. This is Volume 1 of H Speaking to Life on the Line. H, welcome to Life on the Line. G'day, Alex. Good to be here. H, let's go right back to the start. Where did you grow up? My grandparents at the time had a, uh, on the mother's side, had a dairy farm. So I spent the first few years of my younger life uh, in and around there and particularly on and off the farm as far as I can remember. When I was quite young, as in five, six, seven, somewhere around there, uh, my parents separated, which you know I don't remember. It's been a, a, a good time in my life. And shortly thereafter, went to Gladstone in Queensland for a little while and then subsequently Bundaberg with my mother and then in later years, my stepfather. So when you went and followed your mother, was that still on a farming environment or was that more suburban? No, that was more suburban. Yeah, and like I said, my memory of those early years uh, is relatively vague. I think I've just remembered what, what I want to remember. I think that's relatively natural for a child psychology, and that is I remember the good times being on and off the farm, which was in the Darling Downs just outside of Toowoomba, but I don't honestly remember a lot, uh, a lot of other times through that period. From what you do remember on the farm, I assume it was quite an active childhood, helping with chores and exposure to the ideal of the rugged Aussie terrain. Yeah, it was. I've got, like I said, just lots of good memories, you know. They had a uh, chicken pen that went back in under half of the house and the room I used to stay in was over the top of it. It's just little things as, you know, a young fella, you know, I'd go out on the veranda there and uh, was fascinated by, you know, the chickens, you know, moving around in and out grandmother and grandfather for different reasons were both quite full of life big characters and also relatively firm uh, firm people in regards to you know rules and whatnot around the place but yeah i have lots of good memories of that that time so h what's your earliest memory of anything military that might be an anzac day or reading a history book or meeting a veteran i wouldn't be able to put a time frame on it i can recall a few things though I, for whatever reason, because there was no one, well, my grandfather served for a uh, a brief time uh, on my father's side. I have, there's no one else in the military or anyone really in my life that had uh, military experience or history. But I just remember from the utmost earliest, earliest of years being fascinated, maybe even obsessed with all things military, whether that was playing cowboys and Indians out in the yard or, um, you know, I remember in, I think it was in grade three or four, uh, which was on one of my reports home to mum, the teacher pulling me up for he needs to stop playing army, in inverted commas, in class and being such a distraction because <laughs> I was running around, um, I'd hide underneath desks and, you know, I'd use my ruler as my makeshift weapon and uh, I'd be moving around the class um, shooting students <laughs> or pretending to. So it was just always that. And I can, when anybody would sort of ask me, I'd always say, when I grow up, I'm going to be in the Army. 
So I don't. I honestly don't know where that specifically comes from, but I do recall clearly that it was always there. There was never any. There was never anything else. So when do you join the military? Uh, I joined when I was 17. I actually tried to join when I was 15 as a mechanic, so under the apprentice scheme. I can't remember the specific reasons uh, why that didn't work out, but it didn't work out for me. And I always was very headstrong on uh, joining to go to infantry to then go to special forces. There was never any, um, yeah, again, I, I can just remember that quite clearly. There was never any other option in my in my head so much to the extent that I sort of got reprimanded at Kapuka when you had to give three options and I wrote down infantry, infantry, infantry and got hauled up the office and told to write a option two and three down and then went back and wrote infantry, infantry, infantry again, which then they got quite uh, frustrated with me. And um, I can't remember how that ended up happening because I, I, I know I wouldn't fill out anything on option two or three, so I think they may have written something here. You know, I've got you know, the utmost respect and for everybody who joins the you know, Army, Navy or Air Force and what they choose to do, especially nowadays because we're all volunteers. But for me personally, and, and like I said, after serving so long, knowing how, how important all those other components are, for the, um, the actual combat elements. But for me personally, soldiering was to be and was always going to be, you know, soldiering, as you, as you can imagine it, which is, you know, in more of the combative roles and for me in particular, it was always going to be infantry. And then before I joined, had the aspirations to go to special forces, which at that time in Australia, there was only uh, SASR as, the, um, as that unit. So once training actually begins for you when you're 17, how do you find that the institution of discipline and the strict routine and following orders? I really enjoyed it. <laughs> you know, I'd like to say I almost thrived in that environment. I found, and I'm not just saying this because it may sound a little bit arrogant, I didn't find anything difficult. You know, I got best at uh, PT or whatever it was. I just found everything really enjoyable. And even when something challenging was presented, I just found the challenge enjoyable and immediately I bonded heavily with the whole concept of the, the brotherhood and, you know, your identity, how everyone's broken down, probably more so back then, you know, how, how they were very artistic in the way that they start everybody or ensure that everybody's starting at the, the same level, you know, with the haircuts, with what you wear, with the daily routine and, you know, it doesn't matter you know, what your background is or how tall, short, whatever, you can either, you know, do everything that you're asked to do and do it well, or you can't. And I think that, you know, bonds everybody more of an equal uh, plane. You have your eyes set on special forces at some point in the future, but let's talk about your time in the army before that comes about. Once you get through training, where are you posted to? Well, for the infantry, uh, I got the Corps of Infantry, funny enough, and then went to uh, Singleton to do your IETs, the initial employment training for three months back then. I'm not sure what it is nowadays. And then whilst I was there, I had a um, two really good section commanders, uh, both from uh, the recon sniper platoons of 2-4 RER, as it was then. And I, I would ask them after I got there a month or so, and we, you, know, you felt a little bit more comfortable to you know, ask questions to the instructors in, in spare time. And um, I wanted to get a feel of where the best place was to go. It seemed unanimously that it was to go to Townsville, to what was called then the ODF, the Operational Deployment Force, which was combined of you know, two, four RER and one RER. After the three months, I was lucky enough to get assigned to uh, one RER, posted to one RER, I should say. Uh, I got posted to that unit and um, moved up to Townsville. And how did you acclimatise to Townsville? Yeah, it was, it was it definitely hot. I'd never been that far north before, but I I remember settling in relatively quickly and really enjoying that life. Uh, I guess you take a you take a step back. It's like when you leave your recruit training, you know, you think you're at this level, and then you go to IET training at Singleton, and then you see guys there that are you know week ten or whatever it is. So you sort of you keep stepping yourself back at the realization of where you are. So when I arrived at one RER. You know, you're pretty sort of, you know, you're young, you're keen, you know, you really want to get amongst it and then you get there and you're... It's like you've just left primary school at the top year group and then you've come into a high school and then you're at the bottom of the pile looking up at the guys in their final year and they're towering... Yeah, essentially, yeah, that's a great example or great parallel. 
you know, there was just soldiers there that had been there two or three years. When I look back now, I go, well, that's not long. But when you first arrive there, you sort of don't know anything and you only know what you've been taught in basic training. Well, once you get to, you know, every battalion, every platoon, etc., has all their own, you know, their little characteristics and the way that they do it and their SOPs and this and that. And then your section commander wants something done this way. So you, you relearn everything. You're not relearning everything. Everything that you've learned gets tweaked. And I guess then enhanced and then you're learning more and you're doing it the way that they want to do it. No, I really enjoyed the early days of soldiering. We used to go to uh, Tully a lot, which was at the time had numerous Vietnam vets still occupying senior instructor positions there. And I was very, very interested in the Vietnam War being sort of the only war that I grew up through as in that was closer to home for one of a better term. So, yeah, no, I, I really, really enjoyed it. So what time period are we talking in here where you're posted to 1RR? Uh, I got up to 1RR at the end of 1990. So we've seen this long peace come to an end and we're having deployments to Rwanda, Somalia and that kind of thing. And Australia is finding itself embroiled more in international operations. So I can imagine you're looking at that and as you're still a young soldier learning the ropes, that you're starting to see there's going to be opportunity for you to test those skills. Yeah. You know, when I look back at timing, I don't so much believe in luck, but to use that word, you know, you'd say, well, I was lucky in regards to the timing. You know, there's a lot of guys might have been in in one or after, you know, several years or longer. And about when I arrived in a year or so later, you know, might have put in their discharge or whatever. And then it just seems looking back at it now, it's kind of like next minute, but it was really a full two years later. I was in Alpha Company and we were up in some jungle near Townsville. We were what's called the online company, so we're the shortest on the shortest notice to move, and we'd been assigned to maintain that through that Christmas period of '92, '93, and yeah, we're up in the jungle training, and um, we got the message on the radio that everyone's to report back to X location, whatever it was. So we spent the next couple of hours getting back there, and the um, OC was there, the officer commanding Alpha Company, and huddled us all in and said uh, we've been given deployment orders to go to Somalia. And we were kind of like, well, this is another one of these call out jokes, or this is this, like it was quite, it was quite unbelievable when I, when I look back at it, that that was gonna happen. And and furthermore, you know, I look back, think of, you know, what a large or what a major political decision that was, because we hadn't deployed a battalion size unit since Vietnam, we hadn't really done a lot. And then to go to somewhere like Somalia, as in not a regional area or, or anything, yeah, it was just quite, profound i guess at the political decision to do that as happy as i was to go but and then everything spun up from that point forward and we deployed in um i think it was christmas eve or something it was it was a it was a bizarre time we got on a boat we went over uh, with the royal australian navy and the company plus all its attachments and detachments on the naval asset across to the horn of africa via diego garcia to get some uh, supplies and fuel and running repairs etc to arrive there early in early mid-january somewhere it might be hard for some people to to fathom, but you know, as a young soldier, you know, joining the army, especially to go to infantry, you have this you know desire to want to go and not necessarily a fight, but you want that operational deployment. You want to be tested. You know, I'm sure you've heard and some people you know recalled in other podcasts, you know, similar statements that it's like training for you know if you're in a football team and you're training all the time, but you never get to play a game. So you know the people who don't get to have those deployments, uh, irrespective of what their core is, that tests or puts them in an operational setting of uh, what they've actually trained and joined to do. You know, they, they get very, you know, disheartened and it kind of grinds at them. You know, I've had that happen with friends because they have never, they've just never done it. Absolutely. And the sporting analogy is one I hear a lot. Plenty of variations on that. That's like someone who goes through eight years of training to be a doctor and then they never get to treat a patient and yet they mm. want to be actively helping people in a first-hand experience rather than behind the scenes. You are training to serve the country and you've got this skill set naturally you want to test it and you're getting to do that through it would have been the us-led operation restore hope in a united task force yeah that's correct and the australian terminology is we still uh, name all our own operations as operation solace just before we left i got nominated to do the recon course uh, a extremely sought after course to get on in the unit it's seen as the cream of the unit to get into a reconnaissance platoon or sniper platoon or back then it was amalgamated being recon sniper platoon so I just finished that about a month or so prior to us going up in the jungle. So I felt my skills 
and knowledge, you know, as a soldier were getting quite refined. Uh, and I learned a lot off that course with some, you know, really, really good patrol commanders. Getting in just sort of the finer detail of, you know, soldiering and starting to hone skills. So it all just happened, yeah, at what I describe it, you know, the perfect timing. And we had David Hurley as a um, as the commanding officer uh, and was a great commanding officer. So, yeah, it was just all the moons aligned, I guess. Well, I'm just looking at some basic statistics and facts on the 1RR deployment there and you undertook as a battalion approximately 1,100 foot patrols, ensuring the safe delivery of over 8,000 tonnes of humanitarian relief supplies and seizing of hundreds and hundreds of weapons. So there's a lot going on here. It's a significant first operational deployment for us. Can you talk me through some of your personal experiences on the ground? Yeah, look, Alpha Company you know, was not involved in any of the you know, more significant contacts that the unit was involved in. You know, as far as you know, combat, combat goes, it wasn't more so like that. It was, there was a lot more protection details. There was a lot of you know, aggressive patrolling, I will say. The enemy was not a formed, known or organised or smart identity. They were more the higher end of a criminal element, I guess you described them as, and were all about you know, their own gain and sort of didn't have much of a, a plan, even though we saw later in that very year how organised they could be here in reference to the infamous movie Black Hawk Down in Mogadishu. But for us, you know, there was a few you know, little skirmishes would be more how I'd describe them. Very, very intense patrolling of areas to keep them safe. There was a lot of, um, you know, convoy escorts, route denial and protection of, because as, as you alluded to earlier, you know, it was, it was such, you know, leaning more towards a, it was a humanitarian type mission. And um, it was, you know, one of our main focuses was getting that food out to them. But also it didn't stop there. It was ensuring that, you know, then that wasn't taken off them and that it was distributed correctly because you'd pull up in these areas and set up a cordon because thousands and thousands of people would arrive and there would only be 30 of you and you were literally, you know, smothered by their quest to get to that food. So, you know, things in those environments become quite harsh at times as in the decisions you had to make and whatnot, just trying to keep people at bay who were starving trying to get the food, but um, you need some sort of control well, let's talk about those light skirmishes. They'll pale in comparison to anything you face in Afghanistan, I know. But it's that first time you're getting a taste of what you were searching for when you were hiding under the desk using your ruler to um, to your <laughs> classmates. How, I mean, how did you react? Was there an emotional reaction when that first skirmish, that first brief encounter occurred? No, I think it's, again, you'll hear this said many times before, Right then and there, your training just kicks in. So there's only a couple of occasions where, you know, we were that close, you know, to something actually happening. Like I said, the, the couple of the other elements in the other companies got involved in a few more, what I'd call more contacts or combat type engagements. The few things that happened with us is your training just kicks in, you know, straight away. You're not really thinking, you're doing and things happen, you know, very fast. You know, if someone fires half a burst of an AK-47 out of an alleyway of a nighttime, and in those environments, you, know, you can't just shoot back. So, you know, you're just using, you're going back to those, you know, infantry minor tactics, IMTs, as they say, you know, it's run down, call, observe, aim, fire. So, you know, you might, might literally do that, but you initially you'll run to move and then get somewhere where you can observe, and then if you can't fire because there's nothing to shoot at and there's so many people moving around, you know, alleys and inside buildings and, and whatnot so yeah but to answer your question it's it's and there's an adrenaline spike of course it's exhilarating afterwards you know you, you sort of or you know particularly me because i overthink things and like you know what could have i done better or what should have i done or did i do this or did i do that and, and everything but you know most most guys react to things like that in, in post the event in quite a you know jovial sort of happy manner as in like oh yeah this happened or that happened because that's what, coming back to what I said earlier, that's what they're training to do. So everyone, unless you react extremely negatively, it kind of you know, stamps everybody's confidence that, oh, I did what I was trained to do, um, you know, and I you know, didn't do anything silly or I didn't freeze or I didn't, you know, et cetera. So you know, I, I really enjoyed the time there. And it was, it was a great learning curve for later things to come, just you know, to be you know, walking around in that environment for almost six months. Well, like you say, you have that learning curve, then you come back to Australia. 
after having that taste, is that when you refocus your ambition on special forces? Yeah. When I got back, I was promoted to Lance Corporal by the CO. And it's quite funny because about 15 years later, I was at the War Memorial. We bumped into each other a few times. And I just said, G'day, sir. And we were, like I said, we're at the, uh, in the toilet of all places. Anyway, I said, G'day, sir. And I, I said this to him a couple of times over the years. I said, You promoted me to Lance Corp in one hour. And you said, um, You've got great expectations of me. <laughs> just have this kind of laugh. Yeah, you because know, that always stuck in my ear, even though he may have said it to everybody. You know, I took it personally. But anyway, when we came back, like I was saying, I got promoted to Lance Corporal and then posted to uh, Recon Platoon which was a little bit controversial because not many people would go there with rank. Even though I was a junior lance couple, most people would, well, you know, soldiers had to go there and, and, and do time in a patrol and then you'd go back to a rifle company and then come back as a um, patrol 2IC. But uh, I went there straight away as a patrol 2IC. Um, so I really had to work hard to get that uh, respect and everything of uh, all the other men that were in recon platoon and had been there for a year or two. And obviously they'd just come back from Somalia serving in that platoon, even though there was a bit of a change around. But um yeah, I spent the next um, year and a half, two years or so uh, there, which I found, you know, really, really rewarding, you know, as a soldier. The morale on the um, battalion then was just, you know, fantastic after Somalia because you know, we've been on operational deployment. Um, yeah, you got to remember, we're the only people walking around the ADL or the Australian Army, no matter where you went or what course you did, that had medals on. There'd be very, very, very few people had medals because a lot of the Vietnam vets had got out. So if they were like a, you know, an RSM or a senior person, there was still a few of them around that had been to Vietnam. Other than that, because there was such that large gap of peace there or, or non-operational deployments, when you'd go on a course, like people would literally come up to you and they'd like want to talk about it and they'd look at your medal like it was. So I look back at that and find it quite humorous because nowadays, you know, everyone's got a rack. But yeah, living through that period where we're the only guys with medals, <laughs> yeah, it's quite funny. So are you still in recon platoon in 1997? Yeah, but I'd gone and come back. So in, um, I think it was 90, oh, sorry, in 96, yeah, in 96 I went to Rifle Company Butterworth. So I deployed to Malaysia for four months and then came back from there and then went back to recon platoon. And at some stage there I was promoted to a corporal. Uh, so when I went back to recon platoon, I was a patrol commander. And then did, um, in between there at some stage, I applied for SASR, um, but I'd just been charged. I'd had both a civilian offence and a military offence. One was DUI and the military offence was AWOL. Were those two connected? <laughs> no, they actually weren't. <laughs> so, um, so back then you used to sit before a board. So I passed all the initial things and then when it came to the board, they were, you know, just asked me some questions or whatnot. They said, look, we'd prefer you to try again another 12 months, 12 or 24 months when, you know, you have these disciplinary issues, which, you know, I accepted as, you know, that was fair enough. And then in the meantime, a um, mate of mine uh, called me and sort of tipped me off that they were about to raise the commander, you know, so I couldn't, sort of didn't believe initially, but then, as we call it, the, the furfies, the digger intel started to spread around. Basically, I changed my course of action to go to, to try the commando selection course. And it was more so, when I look back, it was more, I think I just saw more adventure opportunity. It was a whole new startup. I was like, it just excited me a little bit more. You're not senior enough to be defining it, but if you're as a team leader, you can try and help shape the culture of it and define what mm. the unit involves into being. So the fact is a big unknown. I can see the excitement in that. Yeah, and, and that was kind of, you know, the rumours getting around that, you know, this could turn into this and that and that have a bit more of a, a, a different role. And so I can't really put my finger on a single, you know, point that made me make that decision. Uh, then it was a, a, a numerous things and I was just like, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to do this selection course. And as most would know, you know, the startup with people who were there and why were there was all a little bit bumpy and there's, you know, some scepticism and criticism about, you know, earlier selection processes. I won't go into those. Nevertheless, anyone would agree that the first actual selection course was that one of 98, as it was referred to, course that was run by an you know, absolutely amazing soldier, amazing officer, the late Hans Fleer. He steered that course as the SI. When I look back at it, it was a very, very well run, very, very hard. There's no doubt about it. Selection course, we've had a combination of senior people from the uh, one commando regiment and senior people from SASR uh, working on that course to start getting the real core product, uh, which would be the start of commando evolution, or well, the full-time commando evolution. 
Yeah, I've heard great things about Hans Fleer from uh, Bram Connolly previously. Just to provide, yeah, some context on this, because the only full-time Special Forces regiment active before that point, as you mentioned, was the SAS. First Commando Regiment was a dedicated reservist unit training at Special Forces capacity, but with the caveat that that's, you know, on a certain number of weekends and Tuesday nights. So for RAR, activating this bracket commando element was this exciting opportunity we discussed, and you get to be there in that initial selection process at right at the start. Well, you wouldn't really have got to test your skills in that force, though, until Timor. So before I ask you about Timor, can you talk me through some, once you get through that selection process and the reinforcement cycle, what the atmosphere is like at 4RAR? I mean, you're still finding your feet. You're still shaping the culture of this unit. What are those early formative years like? Yeah, look, to be honest, you know, in one word, I'd say it was bumpy. They were still navigating through some rough seas for many reasons as to, you know, where was this going to go? They were getting a lot of, there was still a lot of scepticism around and you know, elements that weren't confident, other elements that this is going to be disbanded soon. Yeah, all the way through to senior leadership. Uh, in the ADF, there just wasn't 100% as it should have been. You know, the whole concept, you know, supported and trusted, you know, the journey or path that was about to be undertaken, you know, wasn't as it should be as in regards to trust and whatnot and faith that the, the leadership that it was given that everything will work out and, and et cetera. So, yeah, I'd describe it as bumpy, you know. There were, there were people there got no issue in saying that shouldn't have been there. There's other people there that may have got there, you know, through, through dubious means or measures. And then we had elements from SASR put into the unit, some which were um, you know, excellent operators and others, which again is relatively well known, were sent across there more of a, as a penance. So for those first few years, that's how it was. And it took us those first couple of years, another couple of selection courses to really get that pedigree of soldier in there who wanted to be there, constant refinement of the reinforcement cycle, the gradual through many demonstrations and some good leadership yeah, because there was always a lot of smoothing had to be occurred with Perth in more of an informal way because I think, you know, almost straight away there, there were people in the command that were kind of nervous about it all because they were always, there was always just, you know, the one dog on the block. You put another dog on the block and, <laughs> and if they're dogs, which we were, then dogs are going to fight. It's kind of natural. There's going to be some pissing on trees. Talking on your specific place on this bumpy road, talking typically of the SAS, for example, if you go in there, pass selection, begin the reinforcement cycle, you relinquish all rank, you all go down to the base level of being a trooper. Because you guys are forming a new unit from scratch, though, do you retain your rank as corporal and placed as a team leader or section leader? Yeah, so the first couple of selection courses, it was case by case is the term. On our selection course, there was numerous corporals and lance corporals and privates and probably a couple of sergeants. So at the completion of the training, you were brought in down in front of the SI, in front of Hans Fleer, and you were told, you know, your options, and that is you can come to the unit at this rank or you can do this or you can, we're not going to accept you, you can reapply next year or don't apply again or whatever. And I was accepted with rank. And, yeah, that was another very controversial thing at the time. But when I look back upon it and not defending, you know, it because of you know that happened to me but if you're going to raise something you know it's it's got to have a start point you can't have a perfect solution at the start of anything uh, you know you can't get experience without a job you can't get a job without experience so they needed some people to keep their rank so they were just scrutinized as to who they would be because you know you, ne- you needed to have you know rank it's how the army works as we all know Fortunate or unfortunate, because it did put a lot of pressure on me, a lot of pressure on in the next few years, because you had to step up really quickly. You know, within a few years, you were doing supervisor courses and, and whatnot. So where other people, you know, for example, if you're a team leader or a patrol commander in Perth, you know, we may have several or 10 years experience in that environment. I had, you know, the several years experience in infantry and in the, as a recon patrol commander. And that's kind of how I when I look back out, worked out almost all the recall patrol commanders kept their rank, and I think most of the other people were asked to relinquish rank. So, yeah, there's some parallels there that were drawn. Let's jump to Timor. When did you head over there? June, July 2001, yeah, because we were there when 9-11 happened. I want to come back to your memory of 9-11, but first talk me through what operations you are undertaking in Timor, some of the experiences you had there. East Timor had been spearheaded by the regular battalions, as in they'd already been there on and off for uh, whatever it was, well over a year probably. 
and uh, obviously the SSR have been there for some time. And this comes back to where we still at this stage weren't what you'd call, you know, in regards to the ADF, truly accepted as a as this only special operations element. So when we went to East Timor, our numbers were bolstered up with um, just normal people posting into the unit. So prior to that, it was quite a unstable, not sad, but a bit of a disturbing time for a lot of us because we were like, is this the start? of the fall you know probably one thing that was reassuring is we had a uh, absolutely brilliant commander who later went on to be the commander of special operations australia being jeff singleman so that helped a lot in fact that helped a tremendous amount i believe because uh, he's very very smart and strategic thinker so just didn't allow those distractions to get in our way so yeah coming back on that so that's kind of leading into the deployment you know that injection of all these other people that weren't qualified so there was a lot of us them going on in the unit i was in bravo company known as old school bravo because we were the first company raised and we happened to retain the vast majority of qualified people and then i think there's a lot of of qualified people also in Charlie Company, if remember serves me correctly, and then the other companies became, you know, more, you know, the seesaw sort of lean more the other way in regards to non-qualified versus qualified. Even though the job role function over there was primarily the same as the other infantry battalions, coming back onto the, the strategy of the CO, it was to show the Defence Force, the senior leadership group, that we could do more with the same because of the skills that were embodied through the unit with a lot of the persons already. But that was the road that uh, we pushed down or more forged forged through. And I think that was relatively successful because we did come out of East Timor, you know, with, you know, good kudos and reasonable accolades across, um, you know, the wider defence for our job there, you know, without comparing ourselves to the other battalions. But ultimately, that was, that was what was happening. Can you give me one or two specific memorable anecdotes from your time on Timor? Might be a patrol or a run-in. Most significant, or certainly within the, within the unit, then we did the uh, longest duration. When I say we, my team, did the longest duration patrol, uh, which went for 10 days with no resupply. And basically we had a very, very long foot infiltration by night over some absolutely despicable terrain. You know, he's in lots of rocky outcrops, and it's a wonder someone didn't die on that just on that infill because we were still on the older generation of uh, goggles, or they weren't goggles; they were monocular then. So our ability to compare to today's technology to move of a night time was not good. I had uh, one non-qualified person in my team, a young fella called Westy, who uh, very unfortunate for him. He he was um, he was a good little soldier, but he was very young soldier. And compared to the rest of us who were relatively sort of stereotyped, you know, Westy was a pale white. He weighed about 40 kilo with his body armor on. Not quite as beefy as you then. <laughs> he kind of stood out in our team. But we pushed him very hard, possibly too hard on occasions, through the lead-up training. And um, coming back onto the story, you know, I had some, yeah, just some really, really good good soldiers uh, in my team. at the uh, late Bretton Wood, a couple of other fellas, you know, and we were tight. As in, we'd, a few of us and did selection together, been together for a long time. I always used to get a bit of static about, you know, empire building or jacking teams up or, you know, all through my career. And I'd kind of look at people and go, well, of course, that's what I've done. I mean, don't you surround yourself with the best. So, you know, I made sure my team wasn't hindered with all these other things that were going on and I pretty well had the cream of the cream. Anyway, so for that particular patrol, I convinced over a few heated arguments, the OC, that um, I didn't have to take young Westy, that he wouldn't be cut out for this patrol. And my team was particularly picked for it because it was always going to be fairly arduous and it had some strategic significance. He dropped off. Uh, so I only had the five guys that I knew were, you know, 101% and I could rely on. So we um, had to get into a uh, covert observation post on some uh, extremely high ground, which then had a sharp drop-off. So we actually crawled through a bunch of uh, really, really thick undergrowth, clipping our way through there in a zigzag fashion so that from the outside, if you looked in, you wouldn't, wouldn't be able to detect anything until we got to the edge of this cliff where we set up an observation post to confirm some elements that were coming into this particular village. And like I said, for, to be there for 10 days, uh, we couldn't stand up. We were crawling the whole time. We were, um, you know, pissing and shooting, you know, within um, several metres of, of where we were in this undergrowth. So we just had these little crawl tracks and we'd just take turns on observing and recording the information and reporting that intelligence back to, um, you know, to higher command to help them uh, base their decisions, which 
ended up being a um, cordon and a not a raid, but certainly a search and some apprehension uh, a few days after we completed in this village. That was, you know, an extremely hard, uh, extremely hard patrol. I mean, we'd all almost ran out of water. We had to gain water locally to get ourselves out. You know, there's a saying in the in the military, or especially with anyone who's done anything pretty arduous, that you're pissing siloing. Yeah, because if you know what a chem stick or a siloing is, the colour of it is that like fluorescent, you know, green or red. You know, we're that dehydrated and getting very low on everything. Yeah, by the end of those 10 days and just, like I said, crawling around on your hands and knees for that long. But we achieved the mission. It's not just the physicality there that's really interesting, though, is that it's this sort of duality you have to have in your mental processes. And what I mean by that is you are moving through the growth super slowly. Every physical action you take has to be very slow, methodical, carefully thought out. But also your brain is so alert and attuned to the sights and sounds and smells around you and you're ready for something or to react to anything while also maintaining this strict, slow, slothful silence. It's this fascinating juxtaposition. Yeah, you're dead right, Alex. It's a good lead. You know, it's the strain. I mean, that's what people will never understand is it's not like when you're not looking through the observation devices. You know, it's them alone. That's another whole issue, you know, what they're doing to your eyes and your head and literally just burning your eyes out in the concentration because you're looking through such magnification. It's not normal. And you've got to you know, be so acute with every detail uh, of anything you record and see. And you're in an extremely precarious position the whole time. But yeah, it's just it, that's what grinds on you when you're on those longer sort of more reconnaissance style patrols is you know, the whole time you know, you're at such a heightened level of alertness. We couldn't be compromised up there. There's no one around to support us if something happened. It would take them hours to get anything anywhere near us. You really are on your own. And that's when everything matters, the field craft, disciplined, um, the small patrol tactics, as we call them. It's, you know, all the one percenters add up to 100%. And that's why we're so hard on guys, because you might go to other units or in other areas and they're like, oh, yeah, we don't worry about that or don't worry about this. Well, we worry about everything because we know that everything matters. And it's by ensuring that all the one percents are done all the time to their absolute best of everybody's ability. That's what makes you special. That's the biggest thing with Special Force that a lot of people don't get. We get a lot of extra gear, we do a lot of extra training, but it's the mentality and mindset of doing every 1%, every time, at the absolute best of your ability. That's what makes you special. And because that 1% matters so much, that's why something like kicking Westy off the trip, although that might, from one perspective, sound a bit slack and he doesn't get to have that opportunity, it's actually vital because if you're doing a task that requires everyone to fulfill that one percent every single time the team is dragged down by the piece of the machine that's working the least efficiently so you can't fall the dead weight and that liability falls back on you and that's where you know as a patrol commander you've got to as a team commander you've got to you know negotiate strongly to put it one way arguing might be another way you know with your commander with your boss as to why in this particular scenario why that individual shouldn't come along i mean i never ever in any other um, patrol ever after that point in time it was only ever asked for anybody removed from a team um, it was only in that time because you know we had some non-qualified people in amongst us but you know coming back onto your point it's that the liability the buck stops with you on the ground so you're trying to guarantee or assure success of the mission you've been given and you know what's required to do that, but sometimes you need to sell that to whoever your commander is. And even later on more so with other things as to why you're asking for a particular asset or why you want to leave at this time or why I want an extra two teams or you know, why we want air support at this time and, and what you've got to always sell your plan, you know, assets, resources, everything, you know, they're finite. They're not unlimited, like in the movies. You're fighting for everything that you want and need to achieve your mission all the time. I mean, that happened my whole career, you know, so that was just the earlier stages, I guess, of you know, understanding it all. Talk me through your memory of 9-11. For some reason, I was up at where the headquarters was. I was coming back into the chow hall for something. There was a lot of, you know, when you start to pick up some, you know, movement and chatter, it just sort of peaked in the sort of five minutes beforehand to the extent where your situation awareness goes, you start asking questions because you don't know what's going on. So you're like, hey, what's going on? To everybody you pass, they're like, oh, there's been something big in the US and everyone's mumbling and moving towards the TV. And so you start moving towards the TV. It was still very early in the stages where I can't remember what time frame it happened. But anyway, they were just having that constant replay and 
switching from the, you know, this report and that report and this report and that report or someone on the ground and you're just showing that raw footage that we now all know too well of the scenes of, you know, the people fleeing in the street just covered in ash and screaming through to the planes you know, hitting the towers, through to the other reports of, you know, one's landed here and there's one near the Pentagon and we've got unconfirmed report here. And it just, it was at that absolute chaotic stage is how you describe it. There's no other word for it. I can remember looking at the screen and the first thing I thought in my mind was, I just went, fuck, like, this is a game changer. Like, this is going to change the world. That, that were my first thoughts. I haven't worked with the US a little bit in previous years. I haven't worked with them uh, in, um, in Somalia with the uh, United States Marine Corps. And just seeing how they responded to other things, I just knew then and there that this was going to be absolutely massive. And uh, as it was, and, you know, ever since I've termed it, even though it's never formally been termed, that was the start of World War Three. It's just, it's just been fought differently, and we're still fighting it. Uh, and then shortly after that, I can't remember how long, we're obviously all, you know, sitting on the edge of our seats, waiting to find out what our response would be, what Australia's response would be. Rumours started to spread relatively quickly that uh, obviously the guys from uh, Perth would be part of an initial coalition effort, you know, and a spearhead, which, which they were and did you know, an absolutely fantastic job and were involved in some amazing, amazing you know, initial actions. I can't remember how long after it was, whether it was a week or two weeks, it wasn't that long. I can't remember who called me in, but they said they're going to get together a uh, group of individuals from um, what was in 4-Hour Commando to go to Perth to undergo a suite of training to raise, because one of the uh, initial government decisions, which happened by my memory relatively quickly, considering the decision it was, I mean, it was a huge decision, but they made that decision and it came out that they would raise a second counter-terrorism unit, which um, was then referred to as TAG East, the Tactical Assault Group East, before Perth had a TAG, and it was then referred to as TAG West. And they made that strategic security decision that having um, a single domestic counter-terrorism unit in uh, Perth on the western seaboard was, you know, it wasn't smart being that, it, you know, for reactionary purposes in regards to time, that wasn't a smart place to um, have it sitting all the way over there isolated when you consider, you know, the national assets, the population density of the eastern seaboard, et cetera, et cetera. So 35 of us went to Perth and I was part of that 35. You know, a few other people you've interviewed, you mentioned uh, Bram before he came across and, you know, several other guys, I won't go into all the names. 35 of us went to Perth you know, to undergo what I'd call now a pre-selection course for the counterterrorism course and capability. We were drilled pretty hard over there, which I embraced, you know, and again, it was just another challenge. It was like I'd done all the training I'd done in Sydney up to date. Now I was going to be there, and they said we'll be gone. We didn't know how long we'd be gone for. They said we'd be gone for several months. And to skip back a little bit, I came home from East Timor, I think just before, after a six-month deployment, came home um, just before Christmas, I think it was, and then uh, we flew to Perth on the 1st of January in uh, 2002. So there was no, you know, things, you know, that's where you knew things were serious as in we weren't given any considerable leave or anything after a six-month deployment. So basically came home, spent a few days at home and then um, and then went to Perth for six months. But anyway, coming back on the training. So we went through all their counterterrorism CT suite of courses. There were 35 of us that initially went over. Don't quote me. I think there was about 17 or something. I was 14 or 17 numbers float around ahead that finished that training. So the initial selection within the selection on that training was quite harsh. The guys from Perth had a mission, which I respect. And I'm sure I can, I can imagine how they were worded up. It was like, you know, we need to make sure we're getting the absolute best guys out of 4-Hour Commando to do this training because they are going to spearhead this capability over there. So that's how that worked. After we had that first group, we went on and did a heap of other training. And then they brought the next group over. And then we would help with that training. So that enhanced our exposure and experience. It was a very concentrated period of training. So even though, because people from Perth afterwards were like, oh, you know, I've been on a team two or three years. I mean, in that six months, we did definitely over a year's worth of work and the amount of exposure. We worked, you know, very long hours. Uh, we had, you know, more or less no budget, no resource confinement, no anything. We had and did whatever we needed to do to raise the capability. And then at the end of that six-month, the TAG East, as it was known then, albeit very small and junior, we did a series of tests, which they call the CT Olympics. <laughs> 
Counterterrorism Olympics. Yeah, okay, that's different. Go on. That's what they. Yeah, anyway, that's what they're called. We did the CT Olympics over in Perth, which is like a validation exercise. We didn't have all of the capabilities assigned to Tag West then, so you know we were allowed to do these type of assaults and those type of assaults with these amount of resources, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And it wasn't until many years later we got into a lot more of the advanced, advanced stuff and the niche capabilities. Did you win a gold medal? <laughs> Well, I was I was assigned as first commando of the emergency action force, uh, as it's called. So I did the orders and everything for those uh, CT Olympics. To say there was some pressure and stress on me does does absolutely no justice whatsoever. If I stuffed up anything on that particular day or night, we probably would have got Rolex. You know, anywhere from three to six months of standing up the. Um, capability but i had some fantastic mentors from uh, perth and some of our own people from sydney that entrusted me with my capabilities to to pull it off and basically yeah that's what happened before you continue with the chronology of the capability and enhancement i'm wondering in your internal mindset here because at this point i think it'll be the second contingent of the sas that's over in the middle east doing uh, stuff for the americans so you've got your brothers and your rival special forces unit if you like over there testing their skills in an even more higher tempo setting are you sort of looking at that wondering when do you get a piece of that action or are they just keeping you so busy so slagged you don't have time to think about it I definitely had time to think about it. (laughs) So both. I was very, very busy for those six months. There was, like I said, I've already said there, there was a tremendous amount of pressure on me to perform the job role function I've been put into, not just very well, but to surpass that, to ensure that, you know, I had everyone's confidence that we could do it. All right, H, well, you get through the CT Olympics and you keep ramping up the capability of Tag East and... One of the notable things Tag East contributed towards was the 2006 Commonwealth Games. Were you involved in that yourself? Yeah, heavily. Obviously, we knew from when the announcement occurred that Melbourne was awarded the Commonwealth Games. Straight away, we knew how significant this was. I had a little bit of involvement, you know, only on the peripherals of when um, it was Three Squadron, I believe, at the time, because I had some good mates in uh, Three Squadron who had the lead for Sydney Olympics in 2000, and they were obviously based on our same base there at Holdsworthy. Now, considering what I saw here and the exposure and the training and everything, to put that into perspective, that was pre-9-11. So when it got announced that Melbourne had won the bid for the Commonwealth Games in 2006, this was our first significant you know, counter-terrorism operation being termed Operation Acolyte. We jacked up that team known as the Dream Team. <laughs> I, can, I, can, I can hear and see all the eyes rolling now. But we were very, very particular who was on that. I mean, that, that's a fact. All ego aside and jokes aside, I did a lot of work, you know, steering and influencing, you know, senior people to make sure that they understood and posted the right people in. And we held a lot of people over. We got to the stage where we wanted a guy to spend about 12 months on team so he'd see a full evolution. And then we'd post four or five guys out and bring four or five new guys back in so we always had that good base of residual experience. We had the right guys in the right positions, certainly with the right amount of experience and skills and attitude. You know, I look back now and it was really second to none. Like we, we were very, very good at what we did. We had numerous elements for other special operations units around the world come and observe and be there as liaison officers and from some of the most premier units around. And they were all very positive in their comments uh, and watching us work and deliver the capability that you know we're assigned to the government. It's a no-fail mission. That's probably the key difference many people may not understand with the counterterrorism role is and why it's so intense is because you can't fail. When they get called up, it means the government has ran out of all options. So, you know, you train to such a, a speed, a pursuit of excellence, highly motivated, et cetera, et cetera, because, yeah, like I said, it's, it's a no-fail mission. It's we're going through that door or we're sliding down that rope or we're blowing this or we're diving in here or flying in there or whatever, and this is it. It doesn't matter how many of us come out. You know, the mission was always save the lives of hostages. That was it. And it's at home. It is that final line you have to protect. You basically, we don't negate security for speed, but our priority, and I used to try and explain this to people, that the pendulum swings on speed. Speed is everything because you must get to them and must eliminate all threats before the threat can get to the hostage. Whereas, for example, if you're overseas 
on a compound, this is in a non-hostage scenario, we can cordon that compound and they're on our time. We can be more deliberate. Man, we don't want to get, I mean, you never want to get someone injured, but if someone gets shot in a, a domestic counterterrorism role, you know, there's a paramedic 100 metres away and a hospital, you know, five minutes from there or, or, or wherever. Yeah, obviously, that depends on the geographic location, but you get the point. You've got all these emergency response units supporting you from a national perspective. Basically, there's nothing you haven't got. There's no string we can't pull. There's no resource, you know, that would not be assigned. It's whatever we need to achieve the mission will be given to us. That's the big difference. That's the mindset difference is you need to eliminate all targets with the utmost accuracy and speed. I really enjoyed my time in the TAG on and off over the years and then later became the first Commando Sergeant Major of TAG East. So H, you've had overseas deployments before to Somalia and then Timor. You are in a special forces unit that's really established itself. You have continued to grow your capabilities with operations like TAG East and the formation of that. When do you finally get told that you're going to the Middle East? On the end of Acolyte, I found out and I was getting very, very itchy feet because Operation Acolyte was like a culmination. All the training I'd done, all the counterterrorism and training done thus far. So I was already, and like I said, that's how my sort of head works, is I was already looking forward and looking out as what's next. Well, obviously, it's, you know, to get in Afghanistan, we had already sent our first guys in the commandos had already gone. And then um, Mark Smithhurst, who was the CO of the unit, as in of uh, two command at the time, he pulled me aside and said, how would you feel about this? The reason it came a little bit out of blue is because Force Element was already in Singleton training to go. So I wasn't on that Force Element. I would have tried hard to manoeuvre myself and manipulate things to get on the next one. But he said, I want you on this one. So I was very, very excited to leave Acolyte. I actually left a day early to get back up to have a day or two at home to then go straight to Singleton. So again, I had no break. The biggest and best of H's story is still yet to be told. Here's a clip from the next episode. Yeah, you know, in short, we faced a phenomenal force, as in hundreds. None of us had a sniper rifle, but you'd say we were providing more sort of longer-range surgical fire. Join us tomorrow for the continuation of H's story. Find us on Instagram and Facebook at Life on the Line Podcast and on Twitter at L-O-T-L Pod. Our website is www.lifeonthelinepodcast.com and our email is podcast at lifeonthelinepodcast.com. Life on the Line is brought to you by Thistle Productions. Artwork by Big Cat Design. Music by Dan Van Workoven. Thanks for listening, and lest we forget.